Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past to the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. We are still on season one and about to end our season at episode 14. We're, we've, we're having a little bit of um, equipment difficulty, so we're going to try and have another episode next week. But if we don't, we will be back with our Black Delia series, which is a three-part series, on January 5th. We'll be taking a couple weeks off during the Christmas holiday to kind of get our equipment back in order get our sound a little bit better, and we hope that you will not leave us and join us after the holidays. And if we can, if our equipment allows us to, we'll be releasing maybe a bloopers reel um, or a bloopers episode, just a little mini-sode of all the times that we mess up, and we hope that you enjoy that. Today, we're going to be uh, talking about the Sauter family, which is, it's a Christmas tragedy, and it's so hard to talk about something that's sad during Christmas. But I'm fascinated by this story because it's an unsolved mystery um, dating all the way back to 1945. And I I truly believe that it can be solved. And and we'll get into that. And I hope that that I noticed I looked up and saw that a couple other podcasts had done the Sutter family tragedy, Christmas tragedy story within the last couple of years. But I'm hoping and I'm hoping that we can come back with a a follow-up to this. I'm trying to get in touch with someone from the family, and I hope that I hear back from them. And if we do, it will be part of our season two, and we will come back. But today, I'm, we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna tell you the basis of the story and and what I know right now. And joining me today is Haley. Hi, Haley. You've been missing for a little bit. When was the last episode that you did with me? I don't even know. It was a while ago. So you did the episodes with Craig. That's right. That's what it was. And we'll all three be back for the Black Delia. You, Tressa, and I will be doing that all together. Yeah. Again, it's going to be a three-part story. Um, the first about Elizabeth Short, the second about the investigation, and the third about the suspects. But today, let's get to our story. It was a normal Christmas Eve in 1945. The Sutter family of Fayetteville, West Virginia, Father George, wife Jenny, and their children, and I'm going to list all the children, John, 23, Marion, 17, George, Jr., 16, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 9, Jenny, 8, Betty, 5, and Sylvia, 2 were all together. Now, how did you count how many kids there were? No, a lot. There's nine. They have nine children at home. They have ten children total. Their eldest, Joe, was away with the military. So they were at home. They spent the evening like every family does on Christmas Eve, dinner and and hanging out together, most likely probably listening to the radio. It was 1945. And with nine of their children at home, George and Jenny felt that they had everything to be thankful for. Early, rel- Relatively early in the evening, George had gone to bed along with the two eldest boys. They had worked really hard all day and were tired. And marrying the oldest daughter, had surprised young- some of the younger siblings with early Christmas gifts. When Jenny decided to go to bed, five of her children, who were Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty... Louis or Louis, I'm not sure. Louis, Jenny, and Betty, the six-year-old, begged for special permission to stay up to continue playing with the toys that Marion had brought them. Jenny told them they could stay up a little while longer, 
but they had to remember to turn off the lights, close the curtains, and lock the front door. When they agreed, she and Sylvia went to bed. Sometime, so, so, just to re- reiterate, George was in bed, the two eldest boys were in bed, and Jenny took the baby, who was Sylvia, too, to bed. She left awake Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty, who was only six, and I believe Marion stayed up with them in the living room. They were playing with the toys that she had bought them. Sometime after midnight on the 25th on Christmas Day, the phone rang. Jenny left her first floor bedroom she shared with George and baby Sylvia and went to the hall to answer it. There was a woman on the other end of the line, and it sounded like there were several people talking in the background, is what Jenny said later. She said it was loud like a party or a bar, and that she heard a male voice and she heard glasses clinking. The woman asked Jenny for someone that Jenny didn't know. She didn't recognize the name, and she told her that she had the wrong number and hung up. She was probably slightly disoriented, you know, being woken up by the phone. Have you ever been woken up by the phone at night? Yeah. And you're kind of disoriented. She did remember, though, that when she told the woman that she had the wrong number, that the woman laughed really strangely. Like, it's it kind of... Freaked her out. Freaked her out a little bit. And she said that as she hung up the phone, she was kind of looking around and realized that all the lights were still on, the curtains were still open, and the front door was unlocked. She assumed that the five children who had stayed up late, had forgotten. So she closed up the house, and as she was returning to her room, she noticed that Marion was asleep on the couch, the eldest girl. Back in bed, Jenny was drifting back to sleep when she heard what sounded like an object landing on the roof and then rolling down the side of the house. In some stories, she said she heard the sound twice. In other stories, she said she heard it once. But she considered waking George up, but she knew that he was tired and Christmas morning was coming and the kids were going to wake up early. So she lay there for a few minutes and then sort of just drifted back off to sleep. At approximately 1.30, so this is about an hour later, probably four to five minutes later, Jenny woke again. This time it was to the smell of fire. As heavy smoke poured into the room, Jenny grabbed Sylvia from her crib. George cried, screamed to all his children to get safely outside. Through the smoke and the haze, he got what he thought was an entire family out, out in front of the house. Once outside, though, he realized that five of his children were still inside. He rushed to break a window and made multiple attempts to get back in, but was unable to. The elder boys and George, realizing that five of their siblings were inside, were breaking windows all around the house. George re-entered the house through a broken window, cutting open his arm. In the dim light, which plays a significant role later, because he could see into the house while he was in the house, that in the dim light, through the fire and smoke, he swept the downstairs rooms, the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, the office, and his and Jenny's bedroom. He took frantic stock of what he knew. Two-year-old Sylvia, whose crib was in his bedroom, was safe outside, as was 17-year-old Marion, who had been asleep on the couch, and two of his sons, 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George, Jr. They had fled from the upstairs bedroom that they had shared, singeing their hair on the way out. He figured that Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty still had to be up there, cowering in the two bedrooms on either side of the hallway, separated by the staircase that was now engulfed in flames. He raced back outside, hoping to reach them through an upstairs window. When he went to get the ladder, it wasn't propped up against the house where it normally was. He had thought he could, his second thought was to drive one of his two coal trucks up to the house and he and the boys could climb atop it, probably putting each other on each other's shoulders, to reach one of the upper windows. 
but neither of the trucks would start, which is, was huge, really odd to them because they had just driven him that day. He tried to think of any other things. He tried to scoop water from the rain barrel, but found that it was frozen solid. Five of his children were stuck somewhere inside. His daughter, Marion, ran to the neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but couldn't get any operator response. A neighbor who saw the blaze made a call from a nearby tavern, but he, like Marion, couldn't reach an operator. He got frustrated, so he raced into town, tracked down the fire chief, who was F.J. Morris, who initiated the Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm, which is a phone tree system. Do you know what a phone tree system is? No, I have no idea. A phone tree system is where the fire chief would call, like, the assistant chief and say there's a fire at the solder home. He would hang up, head to the fire. The assistant would call the next person online and say there's a fire at the solder home. He would hang up. He would go to respond to the fire. That person would call the next person. So basically, it's you call the next person and then rush to the fire. Call, that person calls the next person. This is an old way to 1945 is the way they had to do it. The fire department was only two and a half miles away, but the crew didn't arrive till 8 o'clock the next morning. By that point, the solder's home had been reduced to a smoking pile of ash. George and Jenny assumed that five of their children were dead, but a brief search of the grounds on Christmas Day turned up no trace of their remains. Chief Morris suggested that the blaze had been hot enough to completely cremate the bodies. A police state inspector combed the rubble and attributed the fire to faulty wiring, which George disputed later. Mostly because he had house, he had, house, had the house rewired recently, and the lights had stayed on. You know how I told you when he went in the living room? Well, he was inside the house. The lights stayed on. So if it had been faulty wiring or a short, the first thing that would have went out was the lights, and they didn't. Um, they had stayed on for most of the fire, in fact. Believing that their children were dead, George covered the basement with five feet of dirt, intending to preserve the site as a memorial. The coroner's office issued five death certificates just before the new year of 1946, attributing the cause of death to fire or suffocation. But the Sodders had begun to wonder if their children were still alive. George Sodder, and this is a background on, on George and Jenny, George Sodder was born in Sardinia, Italy in 1895. He immigrated to the United States in 1908 when he was 13. An older brotherhood came with him to Ellis Island, immediately returned to Italy, sort of like dropping him off, leaving George on his own. He found work on the Pennsylvania railroads, carrying water and supplies to laborers, and after a few years moved to Smithers, West Virginia. George was smart and ambitious. He worked first as a driver and then launched his own trucking company, hauling dirt for construction and later freight and coal. One day, he'd walked into a local store called The Music Box and met the owner's daughter, Jenny Cipriani, who had come over from Italy when she was three. The two married and had ten children between 1923 and 1943. They settled in Fayetteville, West Virginia, in a small but active Italian immigrant community. The Sodders were considered one of the most respected middle-class families around. George, though held strong opinions from everything to business, to current events, to politics. The Sodders planted flowers across the space where their house had stood. They thought a lot about their children and spent time piecing together the time leading up to the fire. George remembered a stranger who appeared at the home a few months earlier asking for work. Weirdly, as he passed the back of the house, he pointed to two separate fuse boxes and said this is going to cause a fire someday. George didn't respond to him thinking that was kind of strange because he had just had the wiring done, had it checked by the power company. 
and was told that, that their wiring was fine. And that was just a random was just stranger random on the street. Stranger on their, at their house. And then again, around the same time, another man tried to sell the family life insurance, and he got mad when George said no, he didn't want it. And he said, your goddamn house is going up in smoke. He's, and then added, your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to pay for the dirty remarks you have been making against Mussolini. So you could suspect that these people are planning it. Two random people said, well, see, that's the thing about George is that he, George is very outspoken and he did not believe in what was going on in Italy. And he lived in an Italian immigrant, like little town. So whenever he went and got his hair cut or went to the butcher shop or whatever, where everyone was talking about politics, he would blatantly state his opinion about the dictator in Italy. And it wasn't a popular opinion. People were supportive of the dictator. So he pissed people off, basically. More, more often than not, he, he, his opinion wasn't popular. And he didn't care. He just get, he was smart and he gave his opinion whenever he felt like it. Well, he was smart in that the fact that he had an opinion, not necessarily that he should have been giving it. Another thing, I guess it, it dawned on George and Jenny that George being so outspoken about his dislike for the way things were in the homeland, and he engaged in heated arguments with other members of the Italian community, community and he made people angry. The older Sauter sons also recalled something strange. Just before Christmas, they noticed a man parked along Highway 21, intently watching the younger kids as they came home from school. Now, this is the thing I don't understand. Why would a man's opinion who lived in America matter so much to people who live here? Do you know what I mean? That they would be watching the children come home from school or make comments about their children perishing in a fire. Because just the same way he's passionate about how he doesn't like it, there's people that are passionate about that they like it. And people do crazy things out of passion. I guess. It just seems really weird. Jenny can understand how five children can perish in a fire and leave no bones, no flesh, nothing. She She's smart too, I guess. She And any mom would do this probably. She conducted private experiments, burning animal bones, chicken bones, beef joints, pork chop bones, just to see if the fire consumed them. Each time she was left with a heap of charred bones, which is, they did not find that in the house. And they know the children would have been huddled together. They wouldn't have just... With all the screaming and the noise and the fire, they wouldn't have just laid in their beds and perished. They would have been either trying to get out. They would have been huddled together. They would have found a pile of something, and they found nothing there. She said that in the in the basement, you know, the house had, like, fallen down into the basement, they found remnants of various household appliances, and they were all still identifiable. So she knows if her children were in that fire, something about their bodies would have been identifiable. She said the fire didn't burn hot enough or long enough to burn regular household items. How was it hot enough to burn her children? To beyond recognition, to zero, to nothing. She said an employee, she had questioned an employee at a crematorium, and he informed her that bones remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. Their house was completely destroyed and burned down in 45 minutes. So even if it had burned at 2,000 degrees, it had only burned at that heat for 45 minutes. Another odd moment came to mind. A telephone repairman that had come to the house, because they, they stayed on the property, but built their ho- built, rebuilt their house on another part of the property. And they had a telephone man come to repair the lines, and he said that it hit the telephone line had been cut, not burned. 
And then um, they realized that if the fire had been electrical, and this is what I had said earlier, the result of faulty wiring, which was the uh, official report, the power would have been dead. And they know that the lights were on. The mom from outside holding Sylvia could see the lights on. The dad and the brothers who tried to get back in the house could see that the lights were still on. A witness came forward claiming that he saw a man at the fire scene taking a block and tackle, which is what's used for removing car engines, running away from the house. And it says that, you know, could that be the reason that George's truck didn't start that day? Another day, while the family was actually on the site, Sylvia, the baby, found a hard rubber object in the yard. Jenny recalled hearing the hard thud on the roof and the rolling sound. George concluded that it was a napalm pineapple bomb of the type used in warfare. So maybe that is what she heard on the roof that night. They don't know. The Sodders tried multiple times to get the case reopened, presenting facts and evidence that their five children were still alive. However, the police department continued to believe that no crime was committed and that the children perished in the fire despite no evidence of their remains. The Sodders put up billboards and offered rewards to anyone with missing with, with information from their missing children. In 1947, George and Jenny sent a letter about the case to the Federal Bureau of Investigation and received a reply from J. Edgar Hoover. His reply said, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of a local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. So the FBI turned him down. They did say, though, that Hoover's agents replied that they would assist if they could get permission from the local authorities, but the Fayetteville Police and Fire Departments both declined. Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they let... Five children are gone. They think they died. Next, the Sodders turned to a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley, who discovered that the insurance salesman, salesman, the one who had threatened him, was a member of the coroner's jury jury that deemed the fire accidental. That would be crazy. That's just kind of a coincidence right there. Yeah. He also heard a curious story from a Fayetteville minister about F.J. Morris, the fire chief. The fire chief, Morris, had claimed that no remains were found. He supposedly confided that he discovered a heart in the ashes, and he hid it inside a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. Okay, this gets a little crazy. Tinsley persuaded Morris to show him the spot. Together, they dug up the box, took it to a funeral director, who poked and prodded the heart, in quotes, and concluded it was a beef liver. And it it clearly had not been in a fire. So the fire chief, the fire chief claims that he did this so that it would placate the family enough to stop the investigation. So he purposely hit a fake lied. Heart. Yeah. Weird. Not only that, why would he be so desirous of the investigation ending? Wouldn't he want to know where those five children were too? Even if he believed the five children died, why wouldn't you let someone else look into it and make sure? I don't know. Would he be in trouble because they couldn't reach him? That it took till 8 o'clock in the morning to get there? I mean, I don't necessarily believe that they were paid. Like, they might have been a volunteer fire department at that time. But would he have been in trouble for the fire starting at one thirty and him not arriving until 8.30 in the morning? And why, why if they started the telephone tree, I mean, I know it didn't start at one thirty. I mean, they probably didn't start the telephone tree because a neighbor had to go into town to wake him up. Say it started at 2.15, 2.30. Why it take him from 2.30 to 8 o'clock in the morning to get a couple miles away? Yeah. Over the next few years, the tips and leads continued to come. 
George saw a newspaper photo, and this is, makes me so sad. George saw a newspaper photo of his school children in New York City and was convinced that one of them was his daughter Betty, the six-year-old. He drove to Manhattan in search of the child, but her parents refused to speak to him. I don't get that either. I would have spoken to him. In August 1949, the Sodders decided to mount a new search at the fire scene and brought in a, West, a Washington, D.C. pathologist. So this is 49. This is five year, four years after it happened. The Washington, D.C. pathologist was named Oscar Hunter. The excavation was thorough, uncovering several small objects, damaged cone, coins, a partly burned dictionary, and several shards of, ver shards of vertebrae. Now, this is the thing. Hunter sent the bones to, Smith to the Smithsonian Institution, which issued the following report. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual, so it's all from one person. Since the traverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death would have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age would have been 22, since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation maturation than one would expect from a 14-year-old boy, which a 14-year-old boy was the oldest child that was left there. It is, however, possible but not probable that a 14-and-a-half-year-old boy would show 16 to 17 years of age in vertebrae. So they did not believe that it belonged to his young as a 14-year-old, and the 14-year-old was the oldest one that went missing. But then who did it belong to? They thought that maybe when he bulldozed, like he had brought dirt from all over the farm and all over the area um, to cover the basement, they think that it, he had picked up those bones from there. Ew. Either way, it's gross. It was a human bought a human vertebrae, but well, if he basically compromised the scene by doing that by by bulldozing other by bringing dirt. dirt from other places, right? Well, now with DNA and stuff, if that was that's what I want to get to because I'm I'm most frustrated by the story and and to be honest, a lot of the research that I did was not just newspaper articles. Normally, it's a lot of newspaper articles and it's a lot of internet searching and stuff like that. Um, a lot of this information came from Ancestry.com. Yeah. The family is on there. I found several, and that's why I started the story, saying I will do an update. I'm trying to reach out to the family members. The problem is, is that when we do an episode, we're investigating or we're doing our research for the current show. So when I start the research on, say, Tuesday, we're recording by Friday. So when I reach out to people, it doesn't give people a lot of time to respond back to me. But I truly believe this case could be solved by DNA. Yeah, but just that section of it, unless they're going to tell me more. Well, yeah, I am. After, after they had the um, Washington pathologist come out, they started getting reports of sightings. Well, actually, they started getting reports of sightings pretty much right after. A woman claimed to have seen the missing children peering from a passing car while the fire was still in process. Yeah, I don't know. A woman operating a tourist shop between Fayetteville and Charleston saw the children the morning after the fire. I served them breakfast, she told the police. There was a car with Florida plates on at the tourist court, too. A woman at a Charleston hotel saw the children's photos in the newspaper and said she had seen four of the five a week after the fire. The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. She said in her statement, I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight, and I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, 
but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to the children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me, and I sensed that I was being frozen out, so I said nothing more. They left very early the next morning. The Smithsonian report, the report on the um, bones that we talked about, prompted two hearings at the Capitol. After which, Governor Oki, okay, his name's okay, okay, EY, okay, L. Patterson, and State Police Superintendent W. Burchett told the Sodders that their search was hopeless and declared, declared the case closed. Undeterred, Jeannie and George erected a billboard, which I'll put on our um, show page, of, of their five children on Route 16 and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of the children, and it soon increased to 10000 A letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis saying that the oldest girl, Martha, was in a convent there. Another tip came from Texas that a patron in a bar overheard an incriminating conversation about a long-ago Christmas fire in West Virginia. Someone in Florida claimed the children were staying with a distant relative of Jeannie's. George traveled the country to investigate every single lead. Every time he got a lead, he would just get in his car and drive. Always returning, he always returned home with no answers. Years later, the Sodders received a mail from Kentucky. It had no return address and was only addressed to Jenny Sodder. And inside was the, a photo that claimed to be Louie. The, not the oldest boy, the second oldest boy. And on the back, it says, Louis Sodder, I love Brother Frankie. And then it had a couple numbers on it. Many believed it was a hoax, except the Sodders, who believed it was proof that their children survived and were taken. She and George couldn't deny the resemblance to their Louis, who was nine at the time of the fire. Beyond the obvious similarities, dark curly hair, dark brown eyes, they had the same straight, strong nose, the same upward tilt of the left eyebrow. Once again, they hired a private detective and sent him to Kentucky, but they never heard from him again. Never heard from the private mm. investigator again? No. Interesting. Says the Sodders feared that if they published that letter or the name of the town on the postmark, they might harm their son. Instead, they amended the billboard to include the updated image of Lewis. I keep saying Lewis or Louis because I don't know if it was Louis or Lewis. And hung an enlarged version over their fireplace. Time is running out for us, George said in an interview, but we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. He died a year later, in 1968, still hoping for a break in the case. Jenny erected a fence around her property and began adding rooms to her home building layer after layer between her and the outside. Since the fire, she had worn black exclusively as a sign of mourning and continued to do so until her death of 1989. The billboard finally came down after her death. Her children and grandchildren continued the investigation and came up with theories of their own. The local mafia had tried to recruit him, and he declined. They tried to extort money from him, and George refused and never told anyone. Um, the children were kidnapped by someone they knew, someone who had burst into the unlocked front door, told them about the fire, and offered to take them someplace safe. Maybe they didn't survive the night somewhere else. If they had, if they had lived for decades, if it was really Lewis in that photograph, they failed to contact their parents only because they wanted to protect them. The youngest and last surviving of the Sauter children, which is Sylvia, and um, I think she would be in her late 70s, early 80s now. You can't find her on Ancestry? Um, no, I can't. I can find her family. I don't want to sound like a stalker. Um, but I did email a couple 
of people. She's 75. She's still alive. Well, she's still alive from what I can tell. And, um, it says that when, um, she doesn't believe that her siblings died in the fire at all. I mean, she was only two at the time. When time permits, she visits crime sleuthing websites, engages with people still interested in her family's mysteries. So I hope that's still true because if that's true and she wants to take a DNA test, if she really still is visiting crime sleuthing websites and, and engages in with people who are interested in her family's mystery, uh, my other company, which is called Hidden by History, is I specialize in matching people up with lost relatives and I will offer to, if she'll take a DNA test, I will offer to do the charts and everything and see if any of her sibling, missing siblings, had any children that took a DNA test. But if you're out there, Sylvia Sauter, or any of the Sauter family hear this, I will be more than happy to help you track down through DNA. I know how to do all the charts. I know how to do all the, the background and the searching and see if your sibling survived and they grew up and had children of their own, if they had DNA t- tests done, we can we can find them, and I will be more than happy to help you. I want to go over some of the some of the before we end this. Do you have any questions? No, I'm. First of all, I'm surprised I've never heard of this. Well, 1945 in Virginia. I know, but still, it seems like such a crazy like. It's unsolved. An, it's unsolved. It's an unsolved mystery. That's why I, I'm surprised. I know, I, I'm. I mean, I don't know who's more into this than you are, but. I, I feel like I read everything. I'm always looking for new stories. So the fact that I never saw this before, I was shocked myself. And I was a little shocked that a lot of my research came from Ancestry. Like, why have they not done Maybe they have done DNA tests, and there is no connection. But if those five children went missing and went on to live lives, one of them had a child. Like, there's no way that they didn't go on and have ch- All five of them didn't have children. I just, yes, that. But I also just can't imagine during that time the family bringing things forward like the two strangers and the eyewitness accounts of all these other things. Like that not one person in law enforcement or any private investigators or anything couldn't find anything out. They seem like a really passive community. And were they mad at George? Was George not one of their favorite people? Or was the mafia involved? Was it the Italian like mafia? Everyone just was just, paid off to be quiet? Yeah, just be quiet. Just let it go. The kids died. Let them go. Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe they were convinced because, hey, the kids are fine. They're just not with their parents. We couldn't get to all of them. We got to the five that we could get to. Yeah. I mean, I guess they could convince people that if they convince that the children are fine, just not with their parents, maybe people are willing to let it go. I don't, for whatever reason. I wanted to go over a couple different things. The this this is the stuff that made it seem weird, and then there's stuff that explains it away. The strange call before the fire. The woman asked for a man who didn't live there, and then went into a weird laugh before hanging up. That's one of the weirds. After the phone call, Mrs. Sauter noticed that the children had not done their chores before going to bed, leaving the lights on, the shades up, and the doors unlocked. Did the children disappear prior to the fire? Upon returning to bed, just before falling asleep, she heard something hit the roof and roll off. When Mrs. Sauter woke to the fire 30 minutes later, she called upstairs Two of her kids woke up and came down and singed their hairs, but none of the others responded. Why only did those two respond? The police originally attempted to blame the source of the fire on faulty wiring, but the Sauters had new wiring recently installed, so they retracted their statement. 
the fire chief and the fire marshal were astonished to find no remains. None of the children's bones were ever recovered, despite the fact that, by all accounts, they should have remained intact and identifiable. The telephone line had been cut either before or during the fire. A man was charged with stealing a block and chain from their garage at the time of the fire and admitting to cutting the electrical line, which didn't happen, so he might have accidentally cut the phone line instead. Either way, he was never put to trial. If, since the phone line was cut, doesn't that mean that all of this stuff for sure happened after she got the phone call? Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. So, like, the kids... Someone was there at the house. Yeah. Someone was there after... Yeah, someone, when she got the phone call, and then the phone line was cut. And then how soon? So it proves someone was there. How soon after did she hear that something hit the roof and fall? Just a few minutes. Almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And then it says, um, the ladder was found more than 75 feet away from its normal spot of leaning against a house, and it was thrown down an embankment where they couldn't find it that night. So did the guy cut the phone line right after she answered the phone? grab the ladder, throw the ladder, and then throw something at the house and drive away with five of the kids. But why? I don't know. Um, after three months after the fire, Sylvia, one of the smallest survivor, the one who's still alive now, um, found something that looked like a bomb in the yard. And that's what they suspected. What hit the roof. She heard. Right. Okay, now here's the other side. This is people who say that the, the, the children died in the fire. Um, multiple, peop- multiple people report finding some remains, including internal organs, but the family was never told. The volunteer fire marshal claimed that he buried those remains, though they were never recovered, which that doesn't make sense. No. The roof collapsed into the basement after 45 minutes, but the fire burned all night long into the next morning, and the area had to be watered before the search could even begin. So... It could have burned for, for long enough. For the two hours. That search was very unorganized, an unofficial search that only lasted two hours. They didn't do, it wasn't a thorough search. Because the parents immediately assumed that their children died in the fire. It wasn't until they started talking and thinking about other things that happened. The officials were supposed to come back for a more thorough search, but four days later, George Sauter could no longer bear to look at the site and buried it with a bulldozer. So when they were supposed to come back, they couldn't come back. Not only was it a contaminated scene, but may, but they made future attempts to investigate incredibly difficult. I don't know what that means. The family did? I guess. The phone wires the thief claimed to cut were cut pretty high up. The person would have needed a ladder. Um, he never went to court because he said he paid a fine, or because he paid a fine. The mystery caller from before the lines were cut was later found in question by police, and it really was the wrong number. According to FBI files, the Sutter family accused relatives in Florida of kin- kidnapping their children, though that family was able to prove prove that the children were their own. There were several other incidents like this where George or Jeannie would follow up a lead and come up empty. Most children who survived a kidnapping eventually find their way to make contact. They did find bones during the excavation in 1949, but those bones were determined to have never been touched by fire and most likely found their way into the pit when George bulldozed it in. When the mother, Jeannie, died in 1989, the remaining soldiers, I said this, solder children took the billboard down. But then it ends with saying that, you know, how she was, uh, she goes on crime websites and stuff like that. Sylvia. Some, yeah, something else says that she refuses to speak on record or even have her picture taken. So I don't know. Again, my offer still stands. I will, I will help you. If you, if you'll take a DNA test, Sylvia, we can at least find if there are people related to you that are not related to your surviving 
So her, Sylvia's siblings that survived the fire had kids and stuff, and they're all, like, those are who you tried to contact? Sylvia's daughter I tried to contact, too. Oh. Her name's Jenny, too, by the way. 73 years later, we are no closer to knowing what happened to the solder children of Fayetteville, West Virginia. But with advances in DNA and the availability of testing, hopefully this is one mystery that can be pursued and solved, and that George and Jenny can finally rest in peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.